0: This is the Get Stuff Done Cast Cast. My name is Dave. The mayor of New York City, uh, uh, Broadway is there. Eric Adams had a podcast. The only person who listened to it was a dog walker in Queens named Dave. Hi. If you're new, welcome. If you've been listening for a bit, welcome back. Either way, the deal with this project is I became aware that Eric Adams, the insane person who is the mayor of New York City, has a podcast... Called the Get Stuff Done cast, and also that developing an audience for that podcast was not amongst the stuff that was getting done. Quite literally, no one was listening to it, partially due to why would anyone spend their time that way, but at least partially due to no one knowing he had a podcast. So I started listening to it, and beyond being a bad podcast, which it is, It's a revealing look at Eric Adams and his personal failings, which are currently mapping pretty well onto his mayoral failings. The mayor, however, stopped recording new episodes of his podcast a few months ago, roughly around the time the FBI took his phones and tablet from him. There's an ongoing investigation into his very normal campaign and the very normal amount of money that came into the campaign in very normal ways that seems to have very normally financed that campaign. I don't know why he stopped recording that podcast, or if it'll come back at some point. There seems to be something screwy going on with his mailing list as well, which I'm on, but I haven't been getting updates. I'd be unsurprised to learn that he's been recording new episodes this whole time, but that no one has noticed there's a glitch uploading them or something, because, again, no one ever listens to them. But, for whatever reason... We've been without new episodes of his podcast to unpack, which makes this a good time, if you're new, to go back and listen to some of the episodes I recorded in a fever haze last November when I thought the mayor's arrest was imminent. I was clearly wrong about that, but I think I'm correct that, one, there's a lot about why Eric Adams is a really bad mayor that's revealed by his podcast, and two, you shouldn't really have to listen to his terrible podcast to learn that stuff, so... If you'd still like to learn about him, three, listen to some of the episodes that I recorded about his terrible podcast if you haven't yet. If that's you, just hit pause and go back and listen to past Dave and present Dave will be here waiting patiently when you get caught up. Speaking of catching up, it's also a good time to catch up on some of the news that the weird bad mayor has made as we've moved from 2023 to 2024. A great deal of noise was made towards the end of the year about the budget, as Adams used his discretionary powers as mayor to slash funding to just about every sector of city government. These were like historic cuts, and they were sudden, One week things were normal and the next agencies were preparing for Armageddon and issuing press releases about possibly being unable to meet their mandates while the mayor was saying that this was absolutely a necessary step to save the city from a sudden fiscal implosion. And then, as the new year began, he more or less claimed he'd found a bunch more money so a lot of it wouldn't happen. And then he stopped talking about it at all and went back to screaming about immigrants. From where I sit dog walker. It's a confusing mess and it's not clear to what extent that's by design. No one that I've read has done an analysis of what has actually been cut, what cuts were then actually restored, and what cuts were made but relaxed without full restoration. For example, Adams is claiming that he saved Saturday library service, which somewhat ignores the fact that he cut Sunday service and that he threatened to cut Saturday service but never actually did. Will Sunday service come back someday, or will Saturday service once again be on the block when the next round of budget negotiations come? It's beyond my ability to really parse, and unfortunately it seems to be beyond the resources of local reporting to figure out, at least based on what I've seen. Not to say that this is the fault of the reporters who are trying their best, more that it seems impossible to know what will happen until it does happen, And also these days, most reporters are unfortunate to work for outlets that hate news. What is clear is that the mayor seems to have set fire to a bunch of political goodwill to wind up at best back where he started. And where he started was pulling numbers in the toilet and maybe he's about to get arrested. (laughs) Speaking of. Reporters working the boy howdy does the mayor sure seem to like getting money from people who aren't supposed to give it to him beat at the city documented and the Guardian teamed up to ask a bunch more of his donors if they'd been reimbursed for donations they'd made to the mayor by people who seem to be connected to the mayor, and all of them replied, yes, These people asked me to make a donation that I wasn't planning on making myself, and then they paid me back for it, and I wasn't aware that that was wrong, because these people we're talking about are powerful and seem to know the mayor personally, and I guess I thought they'd only advise doing legal things, what would the mayor being a cop and constantly yelling about law and order all the time. Now I'm obviously doing a certain amount of editorializing there, but only a certain amount. Campaign finance law is complicated, and people operating straw donor schemes often don't tell the people they're using as straw donors that's what's going on. It's also important to note that many of the people used as straw donors in these schemes seem to have been employees of the people coordinating the schemes, and that adds a level of coercion and a major incentive not to push back and say they wouldn't make the donation. As we've discussed in the past, the use of straw donors can allow foreign nationals to donate to campaigns legally, but also in New York City, donations by city residents of up to about $2,000 are multiplied up to eight times by the city. So if Person X wanted to, they could gather a bunch of people, say 10 of them, get all 10 to donate two K to Person X's preferred candidate, and Person X could then reimburse those small donors out of Person X's pocket that 20K would be multiplied by 8, becoming 160K. Whereas, if person X just donated their own 20K, the max matched would be their individual 2K, which would only enrich person X's preferred candidate if person X gave that 20K on their own, by the matched $2,000, which would become $16,000, and then the $18,000 on top of that, that was the rest of the $20,000 donation. I think that's $34,000, but I went to school for a theater. I, math, not good at it. And anyway, the people these reporters found sure sounded like they were part of a pretty obvious effort to spread large donations from individuals connected to the mayor out to many small donors and thereby multiply the values of those donations many times over which is not, strictly speaking, legal. And if it was this obvious, it's a little hard to believe that the mayor, or people close to him, some of whom sure look like donation bundlers in this story, were unaware of it. If for no other reason, then, there's no reason to do a powerful person this illegal favor unless they know you did it. That's how you turn your money into a powerful person who takes actions on your behalf. But maybe it's nothing. I mean, it's not like a personal friend of the mayor's who first met him back when they were both cops pled guilty just last week to arranging straw donors for his campaign. Here's where I note that the mayor himself has not been formally accused of a crime and that it's possible that the mayor's old friend really just wanted him to become the mayor. So he just did this out of the goodness of his heart and didn't tell the mayor about any of it and maybe he didn't even know it was illegal at the time he did it. And if you believe that... Uh, for your own safety, please don't try to operate anything more complicated than a screen door. In other news, Adams showed himself to be a master of the type of behind-the-scenes politicking that mayors may find distasteful, but that generates results. When the city council overrode two of his vetoes, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, the other thing—he's a—he's a—he's a master of the thing where you don't do any of that behind-the-scenes stuff, and instead you do a bunch of fear-mongering about what a veto override would do to the city, call the council a bunch of names in public to the media, literally have your deputy chief of staff steal the chairs from reporters during a press conference with the council, say the public advocate doesn't understand what New Yorkers go through because he lives on a military installation, though it's one that's in New York City proper, which Eric Adams' home in Fort Lee, New Jersey is not. And rather than getting some... Private FaceTime with potentially ra- wavering members of the council. You spend your nights partying at Zero Bond or an illegally built party shed at a buddy's restaurant who just happens to be the brother of the police commissioner, or for some reason screaming about it at bar mitzvah in Queens, which he was probably invited to. But I like to imagine Eric Adams just barged in. It sounded like this: We cannot handcuff our police. We don't want them doing paperwork. <laughs> We want them to be protecting the people of this city. So it's time to stand up together. This is our line in the sand. So if you support the people of this city, if you support the protection that you deserve, this is our opportunity to say to people who think that they're gonna hijack our city with their way of life and narrative, not in our New York, not in our city. Let's get to get Congratulations, Incredibly normal stuff. You can't see it, but after some goon in the audience yells at close the fucking borders, Eric Adams does not react at all. And after Eric Adams says, Not in our city, not in our New York, congratulations. He turns to the bar mitzvah boy standing immediately to his left this whole time and half mumbles his name because he's obviously forgotten it, if he ever knew it, then sees the video screen behind the kid says David and manages to save himself a certain amount of embarrassment, but only a certain amount. I cannot tell you how weird it would have been if the mayor of Boston had shown up at any of the bar mitzvahs I attended as a kid. We were also high on sugar and wearing itchy suits i don't know that he would have been safe. It's worth noting what the two bills that the mayor vetoed were, and also worth noting that the council then overrode his vetoes with more votes than the bills initially garnered. The first was a police transparency bill, which would require cops to make a reasonably quick note of any level one stops they make. Level one stops are investigative stops where cops question someone who is not considered a suspect. Seems like someone should, in fact, be writing down the type of stuff that people say when you ask them things like, what color shirt was the guy wearing when he ran by naked, so that there's evidence later. Of course, that implies that level one stops are there for the purposes of solving crimes and not harassing people, particularly people of color. At any rate, the thought of asking cops who are given a weapon in a car and the authority to kill citizens of the state with either, or just their bare hands or tasers or whatever else they can turn into a thing to kill citizens with... The thought of asking cops to write down a few sentences every so often, this was a bridge too far for the mayor. The other bill he vetoed was a ban on solitary confinement in most city-run jails, since, you know, solitary confinement is torture. And I guess it's not surprising that Eric Adams likes torture. He certainly likes torturing the listeners of his podcast, am I right? But again, the council told him to pound sand and cry about it and overrode his veto. I will note that these sort of incremental wins are seen as progress, but it's not like cops in jails, particularly Rikers, aren't constantly in violation of the spirit and letter of laws they don't feel like following. And they'll violate these too. Since there's almost never any consequence, it's hard to see wins like this as worth much more than the paper they're printed on. But it is nice to see the mayor lose. We have to take our pleasure where we can find it. Going back in time a bit, in September, Eric Adams held two different media events, during which he presented the Nightscope K5 security robot to the city, which he promised would become a vital part of policing. The robot is about five feet tall, records video on four cameras, and can move at a top speed of three miles per hour. It was pressed into service in the Times Square subway station and immediately stopped all crime there forever. Adams noted that the K-5 would practically pay for itself since it required neither meal nor bathroom breaks, but that was somewhat complicated by the 3-5 to cops that had to stand next to it at all times because, evidently, Constantly screaming about made-up crimes stymies the imagination from envisioning the incredibly obvious things that will happen when people, just trying to get through their day, have to go through a loud, dehumanizing, somewhat confusing transit hub, and they find their paths impeded by something that looks like a gigantic, half-melted dildo. The robot, which could not navigate stairs, spent most of its time completely still and or plugged into its charger. It has been decommissioned. There were no flashy press conferences to that effect. And there's a thing that happens with stuff like this where people take an arch but also semi-condescending tone towards men. It's almost always men in power when their futuristic tech doesn't work out. Boys with their toys and all that as if the boys or more properly the extremely powerful men don't know that this stuff won't work or that they want it to work at all. They don't care. And and they know. Adams knew the K5 robot wouldn't work. Come the fuck on. Look up a picture of the damn thing. He's stupid, but no one is that stupid. Adams has been promoting for years a piece of tech called the Bolo Wrap, a handheld device that fires a snare at a fleeing suspect, like the suspect's a member of the Foot Clan and cops are ninja turtles. The NYPD, which piloted both the K-5 and a stupid gun that fires a magnetic tracking device at cars as if that's in any way something that could ever work, rejected the Bola Wrap. It's completely useless. Nevertheless, Adams has been holding press conferences promoting the device since 2018. And it's very tempting to say he must just like Batman-type stuff like this. It's charming and adds a cute bit of flavor to his character to think that. Of course, it ignores that, as the New York Times reported, Adams' current chief of staff, who is named, and I don't like to do this, but I sort of like to do this. His name is Frank Carone, and that's a name that would be considered too on the nose if you wrote it for a movie about the most corrupt guy in the world. Frank has invested about a million dollars in the company that makes the Bola Wrap and doubled his investment after Adams promoted the device in 2018 in a Brooklyn Borough Hall press conference. The Times reports that Carone has made about half a million dollars this way. It's also worth noting, for all the good it'll do, that a lot of legal stuff gets pretty illegal when you do it for the purposes of pumping a publicly traded stock's price both the products i've been talking about here are publicly traded now come on no one's ever going to do anything about this or really anything else robbing banks is legal if you own the bank i keep trying to get to the point that i can actually talk about the book this episode is meant to talk about but as soon as i start there's more news so forgive me but there's still more news About 10 days ago, as I'm recording this, a group of men assaulted a couple cops in Times Square. Injuries to the cops were minor. The NYPD released a video of the assault itself, but not the moments that preceded it. And the NYPD's version of the events was that 15 migrants loitering in Times Square were told to clear the street, and they reacted by ganging up on the cops and pummeling them. Following this, several of the alleged uh, cop pummelers were arrested, The mayor put on a bulletproof vest and went out on a ride-along with the NYPD to catch some alleged migrant shoplifters. And about that, he said, a good general leads from the front. So really just leaning into a narrative here, aren't we? Shortly after that, a violent street gang that's never referred to as a violent street gang because they're a bunch of conservative guys and uh, they typically beat up poor people, And also their leader was the Republican candidate for mayor of New York this time around. I'm talking about Curtis Slewa and the Guardian Angels in case it's not clear. That bunch of goons. They did a live shot for Hannity on Fox from Times Square to talk about how he and his goons are going to clear the streets of all the migrants that do all the crime in New York City. And then they literally beat the shit out of a guy on air. The crime they committed was filmed. And while they claimed they were brutalizing a shoplifter who was also a non-citizen, as if either of those categories are reasons to be assaulted by vigilantes or that that makes the assault by vigilantes legal, it now appears that the reason they beat the guy who was an American citizen, not that it matters, was that he was loudly calling them what they are, fascist brown shirts, while they were trying to lie about the state of the world for political clout on a TV show hosted by a fascist brown shirt. I might want to also note that Curtis Sliwell has a long history of making things up that happened to him for press coverage, like that time he faked his own kidnapping, and he once was shot by a mobster, and the reason for that has long been the subject of speculation, and I don't know why any of these weirdos does what they do, but mostly you get intentionally shot by a mobster if you are yourself a mobster. Also, he was fired from his recurring bit on the local news for being incredibly racist. But, the initial incident was still troubling, right? Well, maybe, but... Some additional context has come out to narrow the direction of that trouble. The NYPD has lowered the number of people involved from 15 to 11 and released the body cam footage from one of the cops as well as security cam footage from a couple cameras nearby. I watched all of that. The video shows that the cops approached a group of people, most of whom appear to be young, several in their teens, Those people weren't blocking the sidewalk, and they more or less started to disperse when told to, despite the sidewalk not belonging to the police and it being legal to stand on it. The cops approached them aggressively and with a lot of hostility, and at least one of the people being forced to move was holding an infant. When the cops stepped in front of one of the individuals, he was forced to stop suddenly, causing some of his possessions to fall to the ground. When he went to pick them up, and I'm sure the cop didn't intend to make the guy drop his stuff by suddenly stepping in front of him, the other cop started to jaw at the guy picking up his stuff. The individual finished picking up his stuff, kept moving, and loudly said that one of the cops looked like Ugly Betty. Which is a devastating burn. But it's illegal to make a cop feel... So that ugly, betty-ass-looking cop slammed him against the side of a building. And that's when the rest of the people the cops had been harassing defended that person. They also stopped defending that person long before actual harm was done to the cops, who, as soon as the incident is over, the video shows get right back up. Now look, do I love violence? Sure. I'm an American. I adore violence. But go ahead and, as a civilian, act like the cops did. Tell someone to move, even away from something that you own. Get mad when they do it while making clear that they don't really like you very much. React by slamming them against a wall. And then cry to the press when their friends come to their aid. Shit, tell the cops that story and see if anyone at all gets arrested. If you pop back up as fast as those cops did, those same cops will look at you with the same degree of concern they show when you ask them if they're going to try and find your stolen bike or arrest the guy who was just hitting his girlfriend in front of you. But if it happens to cops... The Post will scream for migrant blood for days. Curtis Sliwa will take the opportunity to get an erection the only way he can. Immediate arrests will be made, and the theoretically unbiased press will publish the police narrative without pushback. And also, it does not matter what accident of birth led these people to have or not have a piece of paper indicating that they are citizens of this country or not, but it's not clear that they were all migrants. Now, I kind of think that they might have been because they seem to be advocating for their God-given rights to not have state agents mess with them or their property. You may recall that there was a bit of a war over this issue about 250 years ago in a way that most citizens of this country seem to have forgotten how to do. Bless. All else aside, imagine coming into the precinct the day after a bunch of teenagers fed you to the pavement. Imagine how badly those two cops are getting hazed for being manhandled by children who called them Ugly Betty. Prayers up. Anyway, that's some, though by no means all of the news since last we chatted. If you have already listened to every episode or you just got caught up, you know that since he's not recording his podcast, in my last episode I discussed a book Eric Adams wrote back in 2020. Is extremely specific, scientific, not at all confusing, and obviously successful plan for health and wellness called Healthy At Last. It's not the only book Adams has written. In the last couple months, there's been a little bit of an interest in a book from 2009 called Don't Let It Happen because, like a lot of Eric Adams' content, it seems like no one knew it existed and probably someone should have read it when he was running for mayor. Now that he is mayor, finally, someone did read it, a guy named Eamon Levesque, and he put up a review of it on Byline, which went somewhat viral. In the wake of that interest, which arose, to be clear, because a reporter finally got around to actually reading a book the mayor wrote and then simply reporting on what was in that book, Adams said several things about this book, including that it might have been ghostwritten, And he even seemed to imply that he never wanted it to be published at all and would therefore have been unaware that it had been. A City Hall spokesperson claimed Adams didn't review the final draft of the book and was unaware that it was being sold. That strains credulity for a number of reasons. Eric Adams' name is on the copy of the book I have. The book was written 15 years ago, and Adams was not a particularly well-known person at that point. He'd been elected to the state senate, but was politically unknown to the point that he's credited on the book's cover as being a former police officer, which is to say a ghostwriter will ghostwrite for anyone who's paying, but he doesn't seem like he would have merited a ghostwriter at that point. It also doesn't really feel like a ghostwritten book, for reasons we can get into later, And the publishing house is a self-publisher. You have to tell self-publishers that you want them to print the book or they don't do it. The book was quoted by reporters who reported on his campaign for mayor. Clearly, Eric Adams should have been aware of this. Additionally, because those reporters didn't make their articles about how nuts the book is, it seems like maybe someone fed them pull quotes from it, which seems like something only the campaign itself would do, though obviously I can't say that with any certainty. What I can say is that I'm pretty sure he wrote the damn thing, But I obviously didn't witness him write it. I just thought of something, and I stopped recording in order to poke around a little bit. It it took some doing, but I'm a dog walker on a snow day. Though, reporters, theoretically, could do this just as part of having a job that allows them to do research for a living. Anyway, the printer that Adam self-published with is called Zulon, because why would anything be normal here? whatever, Zulon recently pulled the page with Adams' book from their website, presumably because Adams told them to stop selling this book that made him look like a weird and unpleasant person. This might lead one to wonder if Zulon in fact did publish the book without his permission. Maybe, in that thinking, He submitted this manuscript years ago, but never pulled the trigger on putting it out to the wider world, never authorized them to publish, and then, when he finally became a famous enough person, Zulan saw dollar signs when they realized they were sitting on this thing and decided to cash in. Or maybe he never wrote a book for them at all, and they just put something together to generate, well, viral blog posts and a podcast episode that might drive eyeballs to their publishing house. Eh, the internet never forgets, though. The Wayback Machine at archive.org archived Zulon Press's website on August twenty ninth, twenty eleven, when Eric Adams was a New York State Senator, and state senators, as opposed to federal senators from states. State senators are nobody famous. Adams had held the position since two thousand and seven. And it's one for which he had so little renown that when he wrote this book two years later in 2009, he credited himself as Eric Adams' retired NYPD captain. So there'd be no reason for Zulon to be publishing it in, in 2011 without his express authorization. No reason for Zulon to be making it up in 2011. And in 2011, the page for Eric Adams's book, Don't Let It Happen, is on Zulon's website archive, complete with his author credit. Not to belabor the point, but Adams and his spokesperson are liars. At about 150 pages, Don't Let It Happen is a thin book, unlike Healthy at Last, which is over 250 pages. Unlike Healthy at Last, Don't Let It Happen is an incredibly packed book, It's not really surprising that a wellness grift is heavily padded and light on information and science and statistics and facts or anecdotes that make sense or support whatever the thesis is supposed to be. I'm truly surprised to report, though, that every page of Don't Let It Happen has so much information on it. Now, note, information and truth are not always ride or dies, but the point is, I'm going to take some time with this one. Lavasque's article was great, but it was an overview of the book and could only narrow to focus on one or two of the more lunatic bits. I'm looking to do a deeper dive here, uh, in part because I'm looking to further inform us about why Mayor Adams is a bad mayor, And there's something truly worth our time in that regard on every page of this thing. I'm not really sure how many episodes I'm going to bring from this slim volume, but just for the sake of not putting out like a seven hour long one, I'm going to I'm going to break this up a little bit. Also, blanket warning going forward. Adams regularly starts what appears to be a normal story and then just suddenly throws in the most horrifying details of terrible things happening to a child. The it that Adams wants to prevent from happening covers a wide variety of things that happen to children. Really bad things, including sexual violence, gang violence, suicidality, and more. I I cannot express truly how jarring and in your face and out of nowhere some of this is. So you should be aware of that going in. Let's get started. In fact, let's start with the cover which I encourage you to do an image search of. If you're a careful listener of this podcast or other works I've done, you know that I really enjoy creating audio description of insane images. And rest assured, this is really going to scratch that itch. The book is roughly square, so we're looking at roughly a square. It was 2009, so all the fonts on the cover are non serifed At the top is the title, and relatively small red letters are the words, Don't Let It... And under that, larger, bold weight, black, and in all caps is the word HAPPEN. The kerning, or space between the letters on both lines, is unsettlingly off. It's not clear why, but the cover is bisected horizontally. The top half is colored slightly off-white. The bottom half is colored more or less perfectly white. Below the title is a red plastic box. It's slightly see-through and has a red plastic clasp that stands proudly under the two peas and Happen. It's a type of cheap clasp that uh, typically fails if the box is turned over or jostled with anything heavy inside. It's interesting what the mind manages to infer. This is clearly meant to be a child's lunchbox, and I immediately clocked it as one, despite the fact that I, on closer inspection, have never seen a child's lunchbox that looked anything like this. I'm not sure that this box exists in the real world, or if it's just a Photoshopped-together Frankenbox. I'm now obligated to make the joke that the Frankenbox is the doctor, and Frankenbox's monster is the monster. At any rate, the box is wider than it is deep or high. Based on the typical size of the contents, I guess it's meant to be about 10 inches by 6 inches, and when closed, about 3 inches high. It is, however, open, and the box is canted forward at an angle, so we can see into it, see its contents, and also we can see that the things inside of it would never actually fit into it if it were closed. What are those things? Moving from right to left, there is a banana, which sweeps from the lower right corner of the box, arcing upward in the image towards the back of the box until it disappears behind another object. In the top middle of the box also partially obscured by another object, is a small bag of mini pretzels. Under that, in the lower middle of the box, is a wrapped white blob. One part of the mind immediately says, Deli sandwich, and another immediately says, Brick of cocaine, but it's not clear which one we're going for here. And partially that's because there's one other object in the box resting on top of the pretzels and mirroring the banana's sweep so that it moves from the lower left of the image to the middle right passing over the banana and therefore preventing us from seeing that the top of the banana must be breaking through the back of the box because the box is much too small to hold a banana is a snub nose revolver. It looks like whomever created this image knew enough to remove the branding, but the gun looks like a Smith & Wesson, except the graphic designer either flipped the image or used a left-handed gun. The lever that opens the revolver is on the wrong side. The gun has a shadow around it. None of the other objects in the box do. The box sits in a null bisected space as if it is atop something, but it's just floating there save that it, too, has a shadow which somehow rests on the nothing that the box sits atop. Under this, in relatively small black type, are the words Eric Adams, retired NYPD captain, and below that are the words forward by Tracy Collins, former principal. So that's the cover. We are led to believe that this still life is a thing that happens, and we must not let it. And apparently, the text of the book will provide the means to divert it from Happen. Let's dive in. The foreword is a page long and is by Tracy Collins, again identified as a former principal. A bit about Tracy Collins, Eric Adams has never married, likes to party, and has hinted at being somewhat non-monogamously inclined. And good for him, as long as... I was going to say as long as everyone's happy, but that holds non-traditional relationships to a standard we don't really hold to what are considered standard marriages. Unhappy marriages are more or less seen as normal, something to be worked on and fixed, and sometimes they can be. But it's sort of strange to say, well, good for them if they want to get married, as long as everyone's happy with that arrangement. So it should be sort of strange to say it about other relationships, right? Well, whatever. Tracy Collins is considered his longtime partner. They got together sometime in the early 2000s. Adams and Collins own a condo together in Fort Lee, New Jersey, about which we've talked. Adams claimed it wasn't his primary residence. If it was, he would have been ineligible to run for mayor. The extent to which the two see each other is unclear. Close friends of Adams have said they'd never met her. She may just be a quiet, private person who's balancing being in a relationship with one of the loudest attention seekers on the planet... Though, interestingly, like Adams, she's also an author. Collins wrote a book called Sweet Promptings for the same self-publishing imprint as Adams, and Adams wrote the foreword for that book, which is still on Zulan's website, and he is still credited with that one. Collins has run a minor nonprofit and seems to agree with Adams that sagging pants is a major problem behavior for the youth of today. Hellgate reports that her relationship to Adams has at least been enriching financially. Quote, In July 2022, Collins even got a promotion and a more than 20% raise at the DOE, going from the senior youth development director to the senior advisor to the deputy chancellor of school leadership a role that did not exist before David Banks, himself Adams' good friend, was appointed DOE chancellor by the mayor. So what does she have to say about the book we're going to be looking at here in her foreword? A couple quotes. Quote, in this book, Eric uses a common-sense approach to address the seriousness of topics such as child sexual safety, abduction, crime victimization, drugs, and gangs in order to help parents, children, and youth make smart choices about their own safety and well-being. It is written in a straightforward manner and contains a unique blend of anecdotes, practical tips, resources, and case studies, end quote. Another quote. Now more than ever, keeping our children safe dominates the global landscape, end quote. Well, that's extremely poorly written. Is he addressing the topics or the seriousness of the topics? Is it straightforward or does it contain a unique blend? What could possibly be meant by dominates the global landscape? This woman is already unfortunate enough to be in a relationship with Eric Adams, so I don't want to go too hard on her. So let's move on to what Eric Adams himself has to say. Up next, we have... Well, it's called both chapter one and the introduction, and I don't know which it is. But Adams begins by telling us the story of why he wrote this book about a new, it's a story about a new principal in a failing school who called a school-wide assembly. In Adams's telling, the school hadn't had an assembly for three years because the staff was too scared of the students. If the staff was scared of the students, though, they'd have assemblies all the time. That's when you can get a lot of staff together and stand in the back and watch the students. Back when I was doing a lot of backstage work uh, and technical theater, I used to take music and theater shows to to schools in New York City, And, and the one time we went to a truly bad school The teachers there used the opportunity presented by what was supposed to be a solo musician performing for a single class to dump the entire school into the auditorium so that they could get a break from their unmanageable classes. At any rate, in the story, the principal holds the assembly, quote, When all the students were seated, she revealed that she intended to give them a new designation. She further informed them that they should ask their parents to use the revised title. The staff members had a puzzled look on their faces as they realized the entire auditorium was hushed. The quiet was broken by further words from the principal. She explained to the students that their new label was scholars. She described what it meant to be a scholar and how she would spend her time as their principal helping them to become smarter, wiser, and kinder. Okay, I went to a suburban high school that's considered very good, although that didn't stop multiple kids from, you know, trying to kill me. Uh, anyway, if you'd done anything like this to us, we'd have torn you apart. But also, the idea that this was ghostwritten is pretty rich. If I make a habit of pausing for every instance of terrible grammar and word choice in, the book, in this book, I'll need to do an episode for every page. Um, so I'm not going to do that, but just to sort of, you know, initiate us into Adams' way of writing as of 2009. For some reason, the words smarter, wiser, and kinder are capitalized. He uses the word further and twice in three sentences, and one of those sentences, the quiet was broken by further words from the principal, is one of the worst I've ever read. Well, you know, who cares? Some time was wasted and some kids were bored. That sounds like school. Well, strap in, because we're going to turn the page, and I cannot express how insane and trigger warning for child sexual abuse what happens next is going to be. Armed with the fact that they are now smarter, wiser, and kinder, multiple kids come forward to accuse one of the teachers in the school of sexually assaulting them. Why now? Well, say the parents of these students, the principal seemed like she was the first person who would take this seriously and the teacher is eventually found guilty and jailed. Adams writes that after he heard the story, he decided to write a book to empower parents and create the same environment that that principal did. Quote, This book will teach you how to notice the early signs that may indicate that your child is being sexually abused, associating with street gangs, doing drugs or alcohol, or carrying a firearm, Near the conclusion of this book, I examine the painful topic of teenage suicide and the signs that your child may be having suicidal thoughts. End quote. This is a weird poll, but follow me. I've watched a lot of Walker, Texas Ranger, because you may by now have realized I hate enjoying my free time. Walker, Texas Ranger, is a show that posits that there's no social problem that cannot be solved by liberally applying Walker... Texas Ranger. Walker, a Texas Ranger, played by Chuck Norris, exists in a world that actually does run on these rules, and so in the episode A Silent Cry, which is somewhat infamous amongst Walker heads, Walker comes to the aid of a woman who has slipped roofies at a bar and assaulted. The way he does this is to barge into a group counseling session of rape survivors, yell at this woman that she needs to tell him what happened, and enlist her as a cooperative witness. At which point, her rapists try to murder her and burn her house to the ground. Walker then arrives just in the nick of time to save her, if not her house, and basically beats these guys to death. And because this is the Walker-averse, those are the correct outcomes. A woman who, in our universe, would have been repeatedly re-traumatized by Walker shrieking at her in a therapy session and then causing her to be nearly killed and lose all of her worldly possessions is instead healed by these events. Because that's the walker reverse, And obviously, we don't live there the interesting thing for me is that the walker-averse correctly identifies the problem and follows the logical next steps of the real-world solution. A cop applies violence to the problem of a woman's assault, and that leads to this poor woman being further immiserated. Typically, in the real world for victims of sexual violence, the, the options are about as bad. In the Walker-averse, the major departures from reality are that Walker actually tries to solve the crime, Walker actually catches the bad guys, and that despite all the misery, much of it caused by Walker himself, the woman who was assaulted feels that justice was done. And And I hope I don't need to tell you that I hate all of this and I wish it was different. What I'm trying to point out is that the identification of a problem doesn't mean that the solution presented will be a good one. Adams notes that the principal in question went to the cops after the first report that a student gave her, and the cops laughed her off. The other teachers ignored the issue and then were hostile to the principal, closing ranks around the accused. The lack of robust reporting mechanisms and the delegitimization of victim reports are bigger problems than one principal, and if that's your single point of success or failure, it will fail again. What happens when she retires or moves schools? What happens when the other teachers who prey on students recognize that this school is protected and request transfers? Why is the focus on this principal, who is never identified, but the forward is by a former principal, who's Eric's girlfriend, so I, I, you know, have a guess here, and not on the bravery of the kids who came forward? Why is the focus on this principal's success and not on the fact that the system repeatedly failed these kids? And if the story is true, all they needed was one pro forma assembly and one authority figure willing to listen. Why isn't this seen as a terrible systemic failure to protect children? And what is anyone going to do about it at that level? Well, Adams, to his credit, wrote a book to try and get his version of what you need to know to be safe out there. But the thing is, like your body, like your health, like the last book of his that we discussed he seems once again to be focusing on what you need to change and not what society needs to change. Even if it works, unless a lot of people buy the self-published book out of Zulon Press, there's, uh, there's going to be a lot of people who don't get the message. And again, there's only so much an individual can do to protect themselves, but a, as a whole, there is a great deal society could do to benefit everyone's safety. Quote, when I began writing this book, my focus was on the complicated and controversial issue of racial profiling. Because it is still my goal to explain this often misunderstood issue and to arm you with the information about how to prevent yourself from being profiled, you will find a section on racial profiling in this book, and quote, The way you prevent yourself from being racially profiled since you cannot change police perception of your race or its profilability is that we all get together and we stop cops from racially profiling people. Or we find another way to achieve society's needs altogether since it seems like the current one doesn't work all that great. Moving on. Chapter 2 is called Child Sexual Safety. It's an enormous bummer, and it goes into an almost are-you-alright-Eric level of detail about the ways in which a child can be harmed by an adult, which I'm going to spare you from. As for what you can do to prevent all that, Adams gives a bunch of tips, and I'm also not going to talk much about them because you've heard them all. They're the ones everyone's told. In fact, Adams, in his book of information, You Need to Know About It, How to Keep It from Happening, says that This about his tips, quote, these suggestions come from many excellent law enforcement sources and the American Academy of Pediatrics, end quote. Yet that's real hard to find. Cutting edge stuff. It's also stuff that all falls into one of two categories. One, stranger danger stuff for the very rare cases that a child is threatened with assault or abduction from someone unknown to them, or two, You can tell me about the bad things that happen to you stuff for things that were already done to a child by someone they know and trust. Since that's the vast majority of this type of assault, it'd be helpful to get some tips on preventing it from happening since this book is called Don't Let It Happen. But those sorts of solutions tend to be along the lines of reorient society to allow much more robust reporting of predators and to give parents a lot more time to be with their kids to keep them safe. It'd be nice if Adams advocated for that sort of thing, but, you know, he's not going to be doing that. You know, maybe nothing I've ever seen more succinctly captures this dynamic than this quote. Below is a list of steps you can take to keep your children safe. And then... The first item in that list is this. Have your dentist prepare dental charts for your children and request that they are redone at each routine dental checkup. Keep a copy of these charts. So the advice here is keep your kids safe by hanging onto a way that they can be identified if all that remains of their corpse is their teeth. Beyond that, this chapter sucks, and it makes me feel bad, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Chapter three is called truancy. It's three pages long, and the way things are going, I'm going to spend about 45 minutes on it. Adams begins by applying his typical rigorous scientific analysis, telling us that, quote, a scholar once described truancy as the doorway to criminal behavior. Adams doesn't name this scholar, but it's fine to just believe anything that a scholar says. You know, just off the top of my head, here is a list of the gateways to criminality that I've been reliably assured over my now 46 years on this earth are the reason for kids doing all the murders that, in fact, are mostly committed by adults. Video games, violent video games, first-person shooter video games, pot, underage drinking, underage sex, crack, heroin, crocodile drug dealers meth pcp satan dungeons and dragons the internet the dark web online chat rooms aol white vans that drive around the neighborhood democrats the loss of western values the destruction of the nuclear family gay people trans people and lead paint that's just what i could think up in a minute for a and 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 for what it's worth i i sort of believe that last one that 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 lead paint one look it up anyway I'm sure they finally figured it out. It's truancy. Studies, Adams tells us, reveal the following. And all the data obviously comes from when he wrote this in 2009. You know, if he actually looked that data up then. Quote, in New York City, 15% of students are absent each day. You know, it's probably higher now, to be honest, since everyone's coughing all the time. Quote, in Los Angeles, 10% of students are absent each day. And you'll note that LA's truancy rate is lower than NYC's, but that hasn't translated into lower crime rates. LA has a considerably worse crime rate than NYC's, and that sort of seems to undercut Adams here. Quote In Pittsburgh, 12% of students are absent each day. This reads like Adams took an intro to improv class and learned that it's funny if you do something three times, particularly if the first two are NYC and LA, and then the button to the joke is Pittsburgh. At any rate, these numbers are broadly in line with the 10 to 20% of the country that's sick at any given time with the flu during flu season, which has considerable overlap with the school year. Or anyway, this would have been the case when Adams was writing this. Thankfully, we've significantly improved our public health outcomes in the last four years. (sighs) Quote, Daytime crime in Minneapolis dropped 68% after police began cracking down on truant students. This is a fascinating figure and immediately stood out to me. One, what is meant by cracking down? Were children that weren't in school, like, forced by cops to go to school? Were they fined, arrested? What was the enforcement mechanism? Two, When was the study done, and over how long a period of time? Might the decrease have occurred on the same curve as the decrease of all crime, which occurred approximately when the worst generation to ever exist aged enough to lose their hormonal drives to murder everyone, which happened right around 1995? Three, why was it that the police were cracking down and not some other agency like, I don't know, the Department of Education? Four, Who was responsible for the study? What methods did they use? Well, to that last point, I did some poking around again and found several agencies and websites that said more or less the exact same thing as Adams, but with no sourcing. I finally found a social work candidate's thesis, which cited the Manual to Combat Truancy as the source for the claim. The Manual to Combat Truancy was a report created at the federal level as a joint project of the Department of Justice and Department of Education in 1995. It's nine pages long, and it doesn't have footnotes or endnotes. On the first page of the report is the sentence, quote, In Minneapolis, daytime crime dropped 68% after police began citing truant students. That's it. No link to a study, no further discussion of the statistic, no timeline, explanation, methodology. That is the only time the word Minneapolis appears in the text at all. The trail dead ends there. Adams repeats this virtually word for word without citation. Directly under that in the report is the claim that, quote, in San Diego, 44% of violent juvenile crime occurs between 8.30 a.m. a.m. and 1.30 p.m., which is also directly under the stat about Minneapolis in Adams' book, repeated virtually word for word, and no, there are no citations or endnotes in Adams' book. Adams then presents a list of vague recommendations in bullet point format that he admits he is just reprinting from the Department of Education, many of which also appear with slightly different language in the Manual to Combat Truancy. These are all things like a message should be sent to students that truancy won't be accepted, and create incentives for parents and students, and involve local law enforcement— So they're all very vague and also not particularly things that parents, the theoretical audience of this book, can do. These are pieces of advice for administrators and government officials. And not to belabor the point, but this is the sort of thing a ghostwriter would catch and fix. They might not catch plagiarism, though. I'm not sure how much of a gray area it is to more or less reprint a federal report like this. You're you're probably expected at least to cite the report, which Adams does not. So that was chapter three, and I'm going to wind this episode down here. We're only about 30 pages through this damn thing, and because the book publisher didn't understand that you typically start the numbered pages when the author starts writing, which is to say you don't include the foreword or table of contents or title page, we've only gotten through about 18 pages of this monstrosity. Well, plenty to look forward to then. As always, I recommend reading and financially supporting The City and Hellgate, if you can. They're two local news sources that are fantastic. If you like this episode or you thought it was interesting, you want to hear more, the best way to make sure you do so is to hit subscribe on whatever podcatcher app you're using to hear my voice right now. The best way to let other people know about it is to tell a friend. Please tell a friend. And if you want to rate or review it, you, 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 sure, go go ahead I don't. I don't think that works. But you know, I'm not here to steal your joy. Transcripts of the show are available at stuffstuffcastcast.wixsite.com/stufftranscripts. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at stuffstuffcastcast at gmail.com Really, please reach out. I would love to know what those of you who are listening to this are thinking about it. And my thanks as always to John Coyne. Until next time, bye.